You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about the private credit market. Very hot topic here in 2023 for family offices for high net worth investors. Joining me is Jamie Shulman, founder and fund manager at Meriwether Group Capital. Jamie, welcome back to the show. Andy, great to be here. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, in our prior episode, uh, if if our listeners, you know, open up your iTunes app or Spotify, check our, our back catalog, we discussed Meriwether Group Capital and, you know, the fund. But Jamie, since that episode, which was like six months ago, our audience has grown substantially. We rebranded. We have a new YouTube channel that's grown quite a bit. So I think a lot of our listeners and viewers aren't yet familiar with your fund. So could you give us a brief introduction to the fund and and your unique niche? Sure, happy to. So uh, just a quick background on myself. I uh, had been in commercial banking, uh, mostly in the Pacific Northwest for my entire career. So 25 plus years, um, mostly in the commercial lending space, working with small to medium-sized businesses. Uh, I just kind of observed over those years, really, a, what I thought to be an underserved niche of businesses needing access to capital that was kind of on the periphery of what banks like to do. And uh, so I decided to find a couple of like-minded people who shared a similar view, and we decided to put together a private lending business focused just on that. So we work with uh, businesses that are typically existing uh, entities, that are typically profitable or e- and EBITDA positive. And they're just looking to uh, generally grow or maybe take on an acquisition, and we help with that kind of financing. Um, banks typically avoid these kinds of things because the underlying business might be growing too fast for them, or they're just bound by their own uh, regulations and restrictions. And we'll kind of talk about maybe the, the industry overall in here in a little bit. So a typical business for us needs uh, permanent working capital, growth capital, or acquisition debt. And we typically come in and fill really a bridge type need. So we're not here to be a, the forever lender. We're here to typically help businesses for a couple of years as they're growing. And then typically we're uh, repaid by either a refinance of the balance sheet by a more senior lender, or maybe an equity raise or even sale company. And so we have kind of a specific niche that we fill. Um, unlike other or more traditional mezzanine lenders or kind of venture debt lenders, we stay definitely on the small side. So our target uh, lending size is under $5 million. Uh, our average loan on the books today is about a million and a half. And so within that space, and kind of these are, again, commercial loans, not commercial real estate loans, there's just not a lot of us doing this kind of space. It's a little hard to do it really efficiently. And so we've carved out a nice little niche for us. And you know, small businesses are ones I've worked with for uh, a couple of decades now. I really love that space, working with founders. And uh, you know that's kind of our, our our mission and our target. And so, Jamie, what's so interesting to me, and I think you were the you're the first private credit guy I've had on the show. I think you know, okay. <laughs> but it, but it it was on my radar, and then after that, it was like seemed like it was everywhere. So so I think you're a little ahead of the curve, or your your timing is is obviously very good. But an interesting thing that you said is you know that that some of the the loans that you're doing through your fund they just don't fit into a bank's mandate or their uh you know their structure their system their rules internal rules 
but at the same time, it sounds to me like if I can use a baseball analogy, you're just waiting for fat pitches. Like you, you don't need to go chasing. You don't need to like chase deals or anything like that. You can almost cherry pick deals that have a very good risk reward ratio for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we uh, we're working with businesses that are making money. These are definitely not or typically not startups or kind of pre-profit, pre-revenue companies. It's already a proven concept. The public has said yes to these kinds of companies. Mm -hmm. They're generating positive cash flow. um, And they're just looking to grow a little bit faster. And when I say grow, they're looking to maybe expand a client relationship or get into a new geography, take on a new product, something like that. And, you know, having worked in a highly regulated industry my entire career, I, I get it. I mean, banks like to see businesses that have kind of incremental growth year over year, not significant growth year over year. Mm-hmm. And that bank makes banks nervous, but that doesn't mean that it's a bad borrower. It just means that someone needs to spend a little bit more time and attention with these kinds of companies. And of course, they need to get paid for the risk too. And banks generally are set up with a very finite set of kind of rules and regulations and boundaries, both from a credit and pricing perspective. So it's really hard to go kind of outside the box. And that's exactly what we're set up to do. Understood. Let me ask you within private credit. I mean, it all, it all, I get, you know, when you compare it to like bonds or fixed income, it's all sort of like quote unquote high risk, right? Or high yield or however you want, but it's not really high risk. You know, it's, it, it, it doesn't need to be at least it, right? Like if you look at the the default rate or, you know, some of these other metrics with many, you know, it's not all one thing is my point, right? Like, like high yield bonds aren't all one thing that, you know, there's a huge spectrum of risk even within high yield bonds. So even if I compared private credit to high yield bonds, there's a huge spectrum there. Where would you say your fund is in that spectrum? Is it more towards the the conservative end or is it? Yeah, middle? we are definitely a more conservative lender in that you know, first of all, we're not doing kind of venture, you know, pure venture debt or venture equity, which is, you know, in these kinds of entities, you're making an equity, not a debt investment. And you're making kind of a bet, you know, I hear on average, you want one in every 20 deals to work out. Well, in our world, we want 20 out of 20 deals to work out. Right. <laughs> so we don't take kind of undue credit risk and we dig in pretty deep, you know, f- doing a financial review and then spending time with the founder, their management team and really getting to know them and ensuring that we're going to get paid back. We don't go into these thinking we're only going to be right, you know, half the time or three quarters of the time, you know, we need to be right, you know, basically 99.5% of the time to make this work out well for us. And so, uh, you know, we do take the underwriting very uh, seriously and really think hard about how is the underlying business going to perform in light of, you know, a recession or a pandemic or, you know, or you know these kinds of issues and things that could occur, uh, and so we stay a little bit more conservative. At the same time, we do, as a private lender, can apply a degree of kind of quote common sense lending that banks sometimes have a hard time doing because of their restrictions. And so when you kind of layer that on top, and then you can really price to risk, it makes it attractive for you know ourselves and our investors, and it still makes good sense for our borrowers. Yeah, I mean, as an investor, this is just my personal opinion. Okay, I'm not speaking for Jamie here, but to me, the thing with private credit, and especially right now, like at this moment, this past year, it's it to me, it feels like it's a low to mid risk product 
that's paying you as if it were a high risk product. And that's yeah. a big, broad statement, you know, but that's. Yeah. I, so you, you can speak for me in that regard because okay. you are exactly right. <laughs> uh, you know, we do just anecdotally, I wish I could maybe better metrics on this, but as I think about uh, a year ago, this time versus today, kind of what are we seeing is maybe a, a, one way to, to answer that from a data point perspective. So we have a goal of doing basically one loan a month. We're not a high volume shop, We're really picky and choosy. We want to know our borrowers really well. We're not doing, you know, this isn't a portfolio of student loans or credit cards or, you know, thousands of loans. We know every single one of our borrowers. So we're really careful about who we uh, choose to do business with. And so for every one loan that we end up doing a year ago, this time we were probably looking at maybe 10 per month. Today, that number is more than double. And, you know, there's, I think there's a few reasons for that as we kind of talk about how I view maybe the, the, ind the broader industry and kind of, uh, kind of credit uh, globally, but we're seeing a really high volume of demand right now. And that helps us, again, be really picky and choosy about what we do. We get priced, you know, or priced well. And so I think that mitigates a lot of uh, risk that can go into, you know, lending business. It does, you know, it is, we are in the risk management business for sure. Yep. So I'm thinking risk reward. If I now have, you know, the, the fund was already successful and was already you know, you were already raising money and, and investors were happy at the previous risk reward, you know, from a year ago or, or six months ago. But now when you have double the number of leads coming in from, from the business, you know, from the business side, uh, it's almost like you can go lower on the risk side of risk reward because you can cherry pick or be stricter with underwriting or however you want to phrase that. Mm -hmm. But then also you have pricing power because it, that's a sign to me that this is a, there's a very big mismatch between supply and demand for private credit loans. So then it gives you pricing power. So there's more on the reward side too. And so that's, it feels to me that a little bit like that's what's happened in the private credit market where yeah. it, it almost doesn't follow like the efficient frontier theory or whatever. But I mean, it, maybe we'll kind of get into that because to your point, the loans, you know, this is what I appreciate about you and your firm. You, you know what you want to do. You know the businesses that you want to help that you've worked with for years and that you're passionate about. And so you're not just, you know, running your fund, trying to ma maximize like every dollar and cent profit. It's more like you're willing to s serve this market, this size of business. And there's a whole huge number of institutions that are just like, we can't play there or we don't want to play there because... We don't think there's enough profit to really make it worth our while. Yeah. So again, I, I I totally agree with you. I mean, I spent, like I said, greater than 25 years lending to small to medium-sized businesses. And I'm a big believer in kind of the small business world, however you choose to define that. Mm -hmm. And I sat side by side as a lender in the past with uh, entrepreneurs. I mean, we're working with the owners. We're not talking to kind of the third in line of the finance team. We're talking to the owner, the CFO. Uh, the key founders, and you know, it's a humbling experience. I mean, to to go off on your own and decide to break away from maybe a bigger business and start your own, you know, that takes a lot of guts. And so, I just feel very passionately of the importance of small business. And so, you know, we said, well, why don't we put our money where our mouth is and do just that? And so, you know, I think maybe there's a connection between what we're doing and what our founders are set up setting out to do that 
you know, gives us a lot of opportunity to see lots of deals, lots of good deals. And uh, so it's fun. And I, you know, I definitely enjoy it. Yeah. That hasn't come across yet. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think that, you know, now, now kind of going personal and my, my track record as an entrepreneur, one of the things I've learned about myself over time in building businesses is it, it it's not, maybe this is obvious, but it's not just about money. It's that, you know, it's not just, there's an opportunity in the market and that's like this objective thing, but then there's this other subjective thing, you know, called Andy. And it's, it's like, I have to hack my own psychology and create a motivational feedback loop where if I enjoy showing up to work, I show up two hours earlier, I work harder. And it's like, it almost from the outside looking in, you'd say, well, you're making it look easy or whatever. And it's like, no, I actually enjoy doing this. And I've kind of hacked my internal motivation feedback loop. And I, Jamie, it seems like that's kind of what you've done here is beautiful thing. You knew going in, you had a track record of dealing with these businesses, but you're like, I know exactly what customer I want to serve. Yeah. So that's why you say that because I, um, I have great. I have two great business partners. I'm going to give a specific shout out to one of them right now because it really resonates with what you just said. So uh, David Howitt is the CEO and owner of Meriwether Group, which is one of our two other general partners. Uh, we operate independently, but have kind of leaned into their name because of what they do, which is really investment banking. Mm-hmm. And David has preached to me, and I'm a I've uh, I've drunk the Kool Aid of what he calls the power of and which really um, speaks to the fact that we can uh, do what we do and it be successful in kind of two ways, meaning we can make loans that are, you know, it's they're expensive what we do, uh, but for our borrowers and uh, we can do a way that really benefits them and we really benefit our investors and we benefit ourselves. So, you know, this isn't a zero sum game type of business where someone has to lose for us to win. What we're doing really is you know, providing value to our founders, and it's a good return for our investors. It's worthwhile to us, and so it's you know that's what I think is part of the secret sauce of, of how this is working for us. I love that, yeah. And, and I guess to draw an analogy, so you got to stay with me, Jamie. Sometimes my metaphors and analogies, you know, <laughs> go, go get out there. But you know, thinking about capitalism and and thinking about you know a company like Walmart, I have nothing against Walmart, but it's like. They come into a, a town or whatever, and it's like there's already an economy there. There's already storefronts there, and they're really replacing that sometimes and driving mom and pop stores out of business. And they're, you know, but they're adding efficiency and yada yada. I don't want to get into that. Is that good or bad? But that's more like that's more like uh, the red ocean, you know, the the red ocean. Whereas you're showing up on a football field where it's like no one else even showed up on it. No one else is even willing to make these loans. So it's just the the mere fact that you're raising your hand and you're saying, we want to, you know, service this market. And when I say no one, I'm exaggerating, right? But there, but there are few institutions willing to make those kind of loans. <clears throat> and so you're right. It, it might be a higher interest rate, but when the alternative is no loan yeah. and then no acquisition, that's a very clear value creation, which I think speaks to what your point is. It's like win, win, win. Like there doesn't need to be a loser. The the loss would be you don't exist. Your fund doesn't exist. The loan doesn't happen. The acquisition doesn't happen. Right. Yeah. I, again, I, I agree with what you're saying. And, you know, I, I'm not a, um, against kind of the low cost provider, which, you know, serves a certain purpose. And I used to think, 
you know, I, I spent a lot of years in community banking and I often thought, okay, you know, if big banks did their jobs really well, I wouldn't have a job. Community banks wouldn't need to exist, but yep. you know, they fumble sometimes and being the low cost provider is not always the best option. Uh, you know, there's value in kind of consultative uh, assistance. And so that's why community banks exist. And that, you know, that applies outside of banking too. I mean, you give the Walmart example, there's nothing wrong with Walmart. They're the low cost provider. They serve a very specific purpose, but there's companies who sell the products that you can find in in a Walmart in a maybe a more uh, unique way. And they exist because if Walmart, you know, did everything perfectly, they wouldn't need to exist. And that, you know, apply that to any other kind of industry. And in our world, the exact same thing applies. A hundred percent. So broadly, you know, before we, I know we're going to move on to the business update and lessons learned and, and all that, but just for our, our listeners, you know, we have high net worth investors, family offices in our listenership. Not all of them are invested in private credit, which mm-hmm. I'm starting to almost probably sound like a, um, <laughs> a, a broken record when I, cause I keep saying over and over, like, Hey guys, I think the best risk reward profile right now is private credit. You know, I, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people agree with like people smarter than me think that too. But what, you know, as a spectrum, I kind of mentioned, I don't know if I'm using the right terminology, but there's more the con- more conservative private credit, there's more moderate, and then there's the more high risk. But what's the range of yield or the range of like reasonable income for let's say like mainstream private credit funds sure. or products? Yeah. So, I mean, so first of all, I'll kind of share what, what are we not and then what are we? And then I'll specifically answer your question. So we are not a growth fund. Mm-hmm. So we're never going to have 20%, 30%, you know, returns, things like that, or downside risk to that degree as well. Uh, our goals are preservation of capital and then a return of um, a recurring payment to our investors via a distribution every quarter. Those are our underlying uh, goals and 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 how we uh, agree to perform. So we have a target return to our investors of ten percent annually. Uh, I'll be p- proud to share that we have exceeded that target every quarter since inception. Uh, we've also paid a distribution every quarter since inception too. So this is really good for those who are looking for kind of yield upside. So it's kind of a bond proxy is almost what I would call what we do. I have seen um, other private credit kind of really income style funds of which that we are that market anywhere from maybe like seven to 12%. Again, kind of depends on the risk spectrum. There's probably ones who are lower. There's probably ones that are higher, but you know, that's kind of the average. So I would say that our target is kind of uh, maybe incrementally above average, Mm -hmm. but given kind of the risk profile that we want to go after, we feel that that's a really attractive return compared to other kind of like investments out there. And you know what, what we do is really, we're an alternative investment and we totally get it. We should never be 100% of anyone's portfolio, but you know, within the kind of the income side of someone's portfolio, we can be really complimentary and help give maybe a blended return once you mix us with you know treasuries or munis or something like that, that it's a little bit more keeping pace with inflation, which is you know kind of part of the, the, the whole idea behind this too. Yeah, bingo. Um, so once you get into the 15, 18% yields, that's getting into that's, you know, you can still find those in private credit, but that's getting more to like the truly high risk. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I will never speak to kind of someone else's credit portfolio, but it just seems intuitive, intuitively to me that that's a degree of risk that would be at least beyond what I would be personally comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, you know, for people who are willing to kind of 
you know, go along with that, there's more yield upside. And that's just kind of beyond the spectrum of what we want to really uh, be. Yeah, it's a a different philosophy. I mean, to me, once I'm once I'm hearing about an 18% yield, I'm thinking, well, the defaults are occurring, and you must be pricing defaults into your uh, (laughs) model and have to have a certain volume. Whereas what you told me is, you know, you're looking for the the thousand percent or 99.9% success rate. So so very different mindset. So Thank you so much for, you know, kind of giving us that review of the landscape. Um, One other question on private credit is, you know, you mentioned munis, you mentioned treasuries for a high net worth investor for a family office. Is there any way to make private credit, you know, that portion of the portfolio tax friendly? Is it just a matter of like, hey, this is a product that ideally you can put it, place it inside a tax advantaged account? Is there yeah. anything that can make it more tax friendly at the fund level? Yeah. So I would never suggest to be a CPA. <laughs> so, you yeah, know, disclaimer, you, insert disclaimer here. Big, big disclaimer there. So you're kind of on your own. You know, we do our, our fund really, you know, distributions are generally treated as current income. Mm-hmm. So there's not really, um, we're not a tax free instrument in and of itself. Having sure. said that, uh, especially for our individual investors, we have a number of investors who are leveraging their retirement instruments and putting money in this fund. And so to the degree that those are you know tax deferred or or tax free, then you know there's the opportunity there. Yeah, and I, I it's interesting, you know, speaking with family offices, high net worth, very high net worth investors, to me that's it's almost the funnest part of 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 managing a portfolio. To me, it's it's like a game. It's like arra- arranging chess pieces on the chessboard. Mm-hmm. It's like okay, you have this amount of space four hundred four hundred one k IRA, Keo, SEP IRA, whatever. These types of products should be domiciled there, and then these other things are naturally tax friendly. You know, but that's a whole. Maybe I should have been an accountant in a second life or something. <laughs> <laughs> I actually find that stuff interesting. Some people get bored by it. My thing is whether you love it or hate it, get some professional advice because it usually pays to. Yes, I would never suggest that I know everything about uh, tax codes. So talk to your uh, your CPA and, and leverage them for kind of the best way to to do that. Yeah, but ten percent t- yield. I mean, that's a healthy yield, right? So so it's it's absolutely worth doing. So Jamie. You've now been running this fund. You're one year in. I mean, to me, this is kind of fun. It was fun having you on the show uh, six months ago. It's fun having you on again because I'm, I'm kind of watching in real time. You know, you're building this business. You're a fellow entrepreneur. What lessons have you learned one year in? You know, as a fund manager, is anything anything you can share that you've learned along the way so far? Yeah, yeah, lots of lessons. So maybe the while I answer that, I'll give you kind of a few data points of kind of how we're we doing, and then. Um, takeaways, you know, one year. Absolutely. So, yeah. so we um we kind of officially opened our doors April 1st of last year, 2022. Uh since that time, I kind of look at things on the two sides of our business, the loan side and then the fund side. So on the loan side, we've made 11 loans as of we're actually closing one uh, tomorrow. So I'm kind of squeezing that in. So you know, through basically a year we've done 11 loans. Mm-hmm. Um our average loans about a million four uh, the average duration of our loans are 18 months. So that's, we serve really kind of that bridge type need. Uh, we have, it's funny timing of this conversation. We have our first successful exit literally today. It happened this morning. We got a final uh, payoff from one of our borrowers. Uh, and so that was actually a great story that 
happened really ahead of schedule. So I would call that a very successful exit. And as much as we like making loans, we love getting paid off because then we can redeploy that yeah. you know, to somewhere else pretty quickly. So we've had our first exit. We actually are expecting our second one uh, this coming week. Uh, and so you know, that's going uh, well. Like I said, we're probably reviewing right now about 20 loans a month with a goal of doing one. So we're kind of averaging, adding about one a month over time. Um, and so on the loan side, the portfolio is performing really well. We have no credit quality issues. Everyone's paying on time, uh, reporting on time, and uh, we're in touch with our borrowers, you know, pretty much on a monthly basis. On the fund side, again, we started a year ago at zero. Uh, today we have about $11.5 million of assets under management in the fund, uh, which it's pretty much uh, close to 100% deployed at all times, given that loan demand is so high. Mm-hmm. You know, the exit we had today, the money's already gone back out into another loan. So we don't wow. really sit on uh, that very quickly. Uh, we have, I think, 33 limited partners in the fund uh, today, including the three of us as general partners. We all, we all have our own money in the fund as well. Uh, average investor, I think, has about 350000 in the fund. Uh, mostly individuals and families. We have a couple um, business entities. We have a bank that's an investor. We have an RIA that has a kind of a fund of fund strategies that's an investor as well. Um, it's mostly uh, taxable accounts. Although, as I mentioned, we have a few who've leveraged uh, mostly like self-directed IRAs or other retirement uh, vehicles and uh, using us within that. Uh, again, we have a 10% target return. We're really proud to have exceeded that every quarter since inception. And based on our pricing discipline, we expect to be able to continue to do that. So that's kind of the quick state of the union. You know, in terms of lessons learned, there's a lot. <laughs> uh, you know, I um, had spent, um, like I mentioned, 27 years prior to last April in what I would call, quote, the known world, meaning I was a W-2 employee for one bank or another. There's only a few I worked for over time. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with working for a, a bigger business or another business, uh, but it's not your own. You know, and you're working with someone else's mission and vision and trying to fulfill that. And, you know, I'm really proud that I made, I believe, a positive impact there, but I was always working for someone else. And so when I jumped into what I would call, quote, the unknown world, you know, it was a big leap of faith for sure. And I was surprised about how humbling it has felt uh, and really kind of the privilege it's felt to work with uh, founders and investors. And I, you know, I take that stuff really seriously, and I'm very, very protective of our borrowers and of our limited partners in our fund. And I recognize that, hey, the, the money we're putting out, especially for our borrowers, you know, this is making a huge impact. It's creating jobs, it's helping them grow, um, and this isn't, you know, a few bucks to a billion-dollar company. I mean, these are companies that are, you know, revenue ranges are probably averaging fifteen to twenty million dollars a year or less. And the loans we're making make a huge impact. And so that is not lost on me. And I sit side by side with these founders and I get it. I get what it's like to go from really a bootstrapped company to one that are maybe getting credit, you know, for the first or second time and all the stress that goes along with that. And so, you know, that um, that has been very impactful to me. And then on the LP side, you know, these are hard earned dollars that people are, are entrusting me with. And that is definitely not lost on me. <laughs> and so keeping their money safe, providing a good return, 
you know, I, I don't, uh, you know, just kind of blow that off. That's, that's critically important. And, you know, I'm very committed to ensuring that we continue to do that. Yeah. You know, I'd say there's other lessons, but that would be kind of the, the biggest. Understood. Yeah. It's interesting at the end of the day, you're working with people, right? I mean, it's, you get into finance or, you, you know, real estate, finance, business, spreadsheets, you know, you think, it, and then you, you know, you start your own business, you know, and, and, and running this, it really yeah. is all about people and, and relationships. And back to our earlier point, you know, that's really what kind of motivates you, right? More, more so than the spreadsheets at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, these are not, again, both sides of the business, both our borrowers and investors, these are not faceless entities. I mean, right. real people. Um, we don't really on the, you know, on the LP side have what I would call significant institutional, uh, dollars, uh, with us. Um, and so, you know, there's real faces behind the, the money that's coming to us. And so that's, uh, you know, we would call that a, a privilege and we take it very seriously. Well, on that note, Jamie, I want to talk about macro a little bit or, or more, you know, how the macro situation is affecting your, your corner you know, of the marketplace. Um, so obviously, you know, we had the whole SVB thing was in the news, regional banking concerns. Were regional banks, were they like, I don't want to say competitors, but were they, you know, making, does, does, does the credit picture with regional banks, does that trickle over to you at all? Or does that even affect, you know, your, um, you know, um, it trickles over to us from a, um, not a competitive perspective, but a collaborative one. So, you know, I'd say that 75% of our borrowers today, we are a subordinate lender behind another bank. And in many cases, the underlying bank is a community, a regional bank, and less so a larger bank. And so, you know, we get a, a lot of referral business from other commercial banks because we're very friendly to them. We help them retain relationships or maybe they've maxed out what they can do, we see an opportunity in a uh, low risk way to do a little bit more debt, kind of quote, one more turn of EBITDA in many cases. And so we're very friendly to, to all banks, really. Uh, we're not taking away loans from them. We're helping them maintain a good relationship. Yeah. And, and maybe even stabilizing a client of theirs yeah. in a way or, or absolutely. Help. And it's in completely our goal, our borrower's goal in the senior lender's goal is for us to be taken out as soon as possible by typically a senior lender refinancing us out. So it's a win, you know, again, this is the kind of the power of and it is a win uh, for everyone. So, you know, what I've seen, um, you know, I've been doing lending a long time. I've seen, uh, I don't know, four or five recessions in my career, I would guess. I'm seeing this really kind of interesting confluence of events happening. You know, I was given that a little thought before this, and I'm kind of, so what I'm seeing is, uh, first of all, economic uncertainty, and that is maybe media hyped to some degree, or is completely real. You know, we're either in a recession about to go through one, or maybe one's already, you know, ending. Who knows? I mean, it's like it's, it's like both, it. Jamie. Yeah, I don't know all the news. It, it just seems like it's both it, to me. I, <laughs> but, you know, whether we're in one or not, yeah. I, you know, I think one of the unintended impacts of that or outcomes is that among other things, large banks get more conservative. So that's kind of the, the impact number one. And I have seen larger uh, financial institutions make uh, more knee-jerk reactions around, okay, we're going to stop lending to certain industries, or we're going to limit what we're going to do. 
And under most circumstances, that's not a problem because community banks and regional banks are there to help kind of pick up the gap. Okay, but now what's going on? With Silicon Valley Bank run on deposits, you know, community banks and regional banks are completely dependent on having sufficient deposits to lend out dollars. Well, what happens if deposits are going down? So, you know, I can't speak across the entire universal regional community banks, but my kind of intuition says deposits are harder to come by these days, they're kind of flooding the safer choices, but those same dollars are not being made available to be lent out from larger banks. And so if community banks and regional banks have less dollars to work with, even though they might want to be making loans, that's harder too, because they literally don't have enough dollars to lend out. And that's all uh, That's all like a legal requirement, right? I mean, they- Absolutely. They, I mean, know. banks have, are regulated in, in kind of managing the, the ratio of loans they have relative to deposits they have in those and things. And if anything, if a loan comes due or gets fully repaid, they may not even be recycling that capital because they well, if the deposits are going in the yep. wrong direction. Okay. You, you totally get it. So, you know, that's going on too. So now I'll layer on kind of one more phenomenon that I've just observed, which is uh, during, especially the kind of this recent three years of or so of COVID is, you know, we've seen kind of this, you know, I don't know if I call it mass res- resignations, but a lot of people leaving, you know, their employer, and the formation of new business has been high too. So we have more people who form businesses maybe over the last few years. And now that they're maybe starting to turn a profit, they're even a positive, they're seeking more capital to grow. So not only is there less lending available by kind of the general banking world, but there's more demand now too, because of what's going on. Of kind See of- that, Jamie, this is what I mean by mixed I'm like, is it a recession or not? Well, I'm like, yeah, it is a recession for these banks, but it doesn't sound like it's a recession from the startup world, right? Because now the first wave, you know, the first wave of survivors and thrivers of this this generation of businesses are saying our revenues are up, we want to grow. It's anyway, I I don't mean to interrupt, but I just think that's so interesting. <laughs> just yeah, it's so not all bad of- news. It's it's good news in a way that there's demand for you, yeah. right? And you know, I'm not um an overly idealistic or um you know, uh, it's all, you know, roses out there. I mean, there are challenges in the economy for sure. And we frankly could be going into an economic apocalypse. I don't know. But what I see here today is that, you know, there's still formation of business. Consumer spending is still there. At least the businesses we work with is, you know, my evidence of kind of what's going on in the world are performing. And so when you kind of mix all this together, there's no surprise that loan demand for private credit is you know very high for us it's kind of double what it was in terms of demand that a year ago when we first started where that is a year from now who knows but it just seems like there is um meaningful opportunity in the private credit world and you know it's no surprise that there's entities like us who are doing this kind of business so one thing i'm wondering about you know with the fed and interest rates you know, they may be pausing or, you know, c- close to the ceiling of, of how they're going to hike or what that seems to be slowing down, at least mm-hmm. for now. And, you know, in fixed income and the bond market that has all, you know, that sort of percolates in the in the bond market and affects everything. Right. But what I'm wondering in private credit, if if I'm in your seat, it's it's a good thing I'm not right, because I don't really <laughs> I would not underwrite. But if, if I were in your seat. You know, and I were I were in one of my cranky moods. 
if somebody mentioned the Fed to me or the Fed funds, I'd say, I don't care. It has nothing to do with us. We have supply and demand, and this is the price of private credit right now. Take it or leave it. And if you don't want this deal, there's 19 other good businesses behind you that do want it. So get out yeah. of my office. That's what yeah. I, so does it even affect you what the Fed yeah. does? So, so first of all, Andy, you totally get our business. If I was in a hiring mood or mode, I would go to you first <laughs> and we'd have an interview and you you understand how we, how we do this. Yeah. So, but, but um, yeah, I mean, you, you understand that very well. I mean, um, what I have observed over the last year with loans we're making today versus a year ago is on average, we're probably three to 400 basis points higher on yield. Wow. And wow. that is a little bit a function of the interest rate environment. And maybe there's some lessons learned in there too, uh, but it's more so supply and demand. And, you know, we just don't have That's to- not good. You, you don't hear what the Fed does and say, well, I'm raising our, my rate by 60 basis point or whatever. It's more just, you know what the market's going to bear because you're seeing applications come in and we we are and you know yeah. we just don't sharpen our pencils a lot uh because to your point if a borrower says nah, that's too high for me I'm like fine you know we'll just move on to the next one and um as long as that still exists we're going to continue to operate this way and you know my suspicion is um uh if demand slowed um, you know, we the pricing we are able to get today still is well within what we're forecasting and targeting to our investors. And, you know, while I never take anything for granted, I feel we've kind of comfortably positioned ourselves to ensure a good return, you know, regardless of where interest rates are going over time. So you have essentially, if I'm if I'm reading the tea leaves or if I'm hearing you right, you're saying you don't even need this perfect storm to deliver the 10% goal to your investors yeah. is your belief in it yeah. right now. I, mean, it's, yeah. it's, I just think the world of private credit has a permanent place in the commercial lending space. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, maybe I'm wrong and, you know, I'll look back and be completely embarrassed by this comment, but yeah. it just seems to me that um, the general kind of commercial banking world has set itself up such that private lenders have a meaningful place to exist. Uh, well, I totally agree. No, you're you're right. So, so you're saying, look, the supply and demand uh, dynamic here is a macro trend that yeah. is, well, heck, it's decades, I would probably in, in the making. The fact that you know lending standards are tightening at banks right now, and the Fed funds rate, all that stuff, that's just gasoline on the fire. But even yeah. if the gasoline goes away, this is still a fire. Sorry yeah. if I'm using a fire analogy, Jamie. That's probably not the right it's analogy. Okay. But <laughs> Here's the other maybe anecdote I would share that kind of yeah. supports that idea, which is we have um, more than a couple borrowers who, in my opinion, are more are more bankable than they think they are, meaning they probably could have gone to their lender or maybe shopped it around to other lenders and or sought maybe SBA lending and gotten uh, what they needed without going to me. But they've chosen to go with a private lender in part because of the user-friendly nature of our business. Meaning we charge more, but, you know, do you want to, you know, I'm the lender, I'm the chief credit officer, you know, I'm the one you're talking to, or do you want kind of a, a faceless large entity where the turnover lender might be high and you don't know who you're talking to and you have to retell your story. 
to a new uh, you know lender every year, and what is that worth? Interesting. And, and Interesting. so you know we have people who I think could get money less expensively elsewhere. And I, in fact, I have no problem telling them, "Hey, I think you can get this cheaper elsewhere." And they have still said, "But you're just easier to work with." And I'm not tooting my own horn. I am tooting the horn of private credit when I say that. Because when you're, it, you know, if if I'm if I get hazard to guess, allow me to hazard to guess. When you're doing underwriting, when when you're doing due diligence, you are, you know, I'm sure you have record keeping and all that sort of thing and checks and balances. But you're just really trying to get to the answer, trying to get to the the truth, mm -hmm. trying to get to the heart of the matter. Whereas at a larger institution. It's going to be so um, institutionalized yeah. that there's always a huge percentage of we have to dot dot this I and cross this T yeah. and fill out the TPS report, right? Yep, absolutely. So there's, you know, my opinion, um, there are two kinds of credit cultures in whether it's banking or private credit, whatever you choose. There's a um, guilty until proven innocent culture, and there's an innocent until proven guilty culture. And guess yeah. which one is a lot more fun to work with? It makes a lot more sense. And that we're, you know, an innocent until proven guilty. And as long as we understand how the business makes money, how they're going to pay us back, our mindset is, okay, how can we get this to a yes? Versus starting with, it's just easier to say no. And then maybe we'll, if the lender begs and pleads, maybe we'll get to a yes. And that's kind of, you know, that's our, that's our mindset. I love that, you know, and the, the big difference, you know, skin in the game, both from your side of the table, from the founder's side of the table, it's, it is as an entrepreneur and I work with other entrepreneurs a lot. It is, that is a refreshing part of working with small businesses, you know, is that, that, you know, sometimes at larger institutions that there's not that much of a direct effect between how you perform at your job, and, you know, the direction of the company. So yeah, I, I kind of get it. And that is interesting that some entrepreneurs, you know, choose to work not just with your fund, but to your point, you know, with that's a trend in, in the whole industry. So, you know, let's talk about outlook for 2023 or, or even into next year. Do you see yields staying the same? Do you see them becoming even, even juicier? You yeah. Know? I mean, well, uh, so my, you know, my outlook, no, no surprise based on what we've just talked about is fairly optimistic. Um, I think regardless of what's going on in the world, um, you know, there's businesses who find a way to uh, make money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, those are the ones we want to focus on. We want to continue to focus working with businesses who have a proven concept where the, the, the broader public has said yes to them and uh, their founders we like working with. And so my outlook is that there's sufficient of these for us to kind of keep doing what we're doing. From a yield perspective, you know, I think there is a cost of capital ceiling upon which borrowers just are, are not going to borrow. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're not that far from that number. Uh, I think there's maybe some yield upside with what we're doing. Uh, but, you know, from a, a borrower's perspective, they're usually considering us debt and they're oftentimes also considering well should i just sell equity which is dilutive uh, but is a non-credit way of raising money too mm -hmm. and so the cost of debt capital i think could get to the point where okay maybe it just makes more sense to sell equity although in that scenario jamie i have to say probably valuations are a lot less attractive yep. you know in the safe so the really probably cost of equity 
in my I, speaking as someone who's raised equity before and has done private equity deals before, in my experience, those two things probably move together. Like if the cost of debt is way higher, probably means the valuation, equity valuation mm -hmm. of my business is way down. So, but but I hear you, and I honestly I think that it's honestly a very a good message, refreshing message, because it tells me that the yields you're talking about, the opportunity with your fund and in private credit in general, it's not a tactical thing that relates to like high inflation or high interest rates right now. It's more a, a structural long-term play. Agreed. Agreed. Lovely. And and now I have to give a little plug for upcoming event, Jamie. You and your offering will be presented at Alt Expo, which is upcoming on May 4th. So uh, this event is for high net worth investors, family offices, financial advisors, RIAs can come and learn about different income producing strategies, different types of alternative investments, and also learn about all sorts of specific funds that are available right now to new investors. So more information on that event is available at wealthchannel.com. It's free for high net worth investors and advisors. So I encourage everyone to check that out. And Jamie, I'm looking forward to having you participate in the event. Um, I have to say, back to the beginning of this interview, I for, you know one of the very first segments, you mentioned capital preservation and income, You know, two kind of core pieces of your strategy in your fund. We're doing panels on those two topics at the show. And those, it's like, I've never heard capital preservation as a phrase more than I have heard it in the past 12 <laughs> months. So I think, Jamie, I have to tell you, I think your philosophy is resonating okay, in the market good, right good. now. <laughs> We're not so crazy after all. That's that's good to hear. <laughs> no, I did definitely not. And, and that being said, where can our listeners, where can our audience of high net worth investors and family offices go to learn more about Meriwether Group Capital in the meantime? Sure. So I, I believe uh, you will probably uh, post this and include all of our uh, information. You can email me at jamie at Meriwether Group Capital, which will be on the uh, the website that you post this, as well as our, our website. I'm looking forward to participating on the the uh, Alt Expo in, in May. And, uh, you know, I'll just my shameless plug on top of that is, uh, you know, no surprise, loan demand is very high. Our fund, which is evergreen or open-ended, we're always looking to add uh, new investors because then we can just do more lending, which is our goal. And uh, so we're uh, certainly open to uh, talking to individuals who are seeking this kind of a strategy. Absolutely. And as Jamie said, I'll be sure to add links to Meriwether Group Capital in our show notes. Jamie, thanks again for joining the show today. Hey, Andy, always a pleasure. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.